Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez Packham. Let's get on with the show. I don't normally do Halloween specials. I know I should, but I'm usually too busy doing Halloween to really talk about it. That sometimes surprises listeners. And I've had many American friends say that they heard Halloween isn't really a thing in the United Kingdom. Some even think the USA invented it. Others feel that it was once an ancient British custom, but one that died out and was now only celebrated in epic style in the USA. I've been to the USA for Halloween and it is spectacular. Seriously, I've seen amazing houses, customs, costumes and so much more. Nothing I'm about to say in this episode is to run down the USA's distinctly Halloween tradition, one which has its own history that's well deserving of study. From the Gothic of New England, to the parties of New York, to the homely community trick-or-treats of the Midwest, to the boho Buffyverse-style West Coast shindigs. But today, we will step away and look at the Victorian Halloween, because it never died out in the United Kingdom, although it certainly came close. It just changed and grew in its own way. Before we get started, though, I'd like to say a big thank you and welcome to new patron, Brad Hammond, who has become a ha-haw toff. I really appreciate the support. I've also had a couple of delightful reviews. The first is from Ian G. Ottawa from Canada, five star, who says, quote, One of the best podcasts out there. Chris Fernandez-Packham is exploring the process of imperialism and colonialism through the eyes of the people of the day, rather than simply applying a modern viewpoint. He is not an apologist for the imperialists, but he is trying to help us understand how they felt about what they were doing. This takes considerable courage in our current climate, which prefers to simply damn historical figures who do not live up to the current moral standards. I am hoping for his explanation of Canadian history in the Victorian era. End quote. Thank you, Ian. Yes, imperialism is a difficult topic, and I hope that the podcast helps us understand it as they perceived it from all sides and views. And don't worry, we will be getting to Canada. But I've got to go back via the United Kingdom first. I've also had a review from the wonderful Annie and Jenny at the Stories of Scotland podcast. Five stars. Quote, Intriguing, well-researched history. I discovered this podcast on Twitter, and I'm so glad I did. The host is empathetic, going into the nuances of Victorian history. He doesn't subscribe to sensationalising history. Instead, looking at cases from different angles, drawing thoughtful reflections. It's very clever, 
well considered, and I found myself hooked by his insightful perspective. Great sound quality too. End quote. I really appreciate this, especially as the Stories of Scotland podcast is extremely highly regarded in Scotland, and both the hosts are just delightful to listen to. I highly recommend their show, especially the episode on the Highland Gold Rush of 1869 in the bleak north of Kildonan, Sutherland, Scotland, or the episode on the revolutionary Turaku, or, as us southerners would wrongly say, the Tara Cow. I have never heard two hosts have so much fun on a podcast. Now, on with the Victorian Halloween special. Our popular view seems to be that the Victorian attitude is best summed up by a quote in the St. Nicholas magazine. Quote, All superstitions are foolish. Fasten a horseshoe to the door to procure good luck, or to throw salt over the shoulder to prevent it. To be glad to have first seen a new moon over the right, or to be sad to be sitting at thirteen at a table. To turn twice around before setting out a second time. To frame a mental wish after speaking simultaneously the same words with another. Our practices unworthy of our day, making children of grown people and fools of boys and girls. Religion is one thing, superstition another. The two are opposites. The former pays honour to God, the latter does homage to ignorance. End quote. From an article, Legends and Superstitions, in the St. Nicholas magazine. November 1874. But is it true? Did the Victorians not celebrate Halloween? Was it just a relic of the past? And one that was then re-imported from a former colony? No, absolutely not. There is a real problem here with us reading current customs back into the past. Neither British nor American Halloweens in the 19th century or older were the same as today. For those of us who don't know, here's the sort of standard story of Halloween you often hear. November the 1st was the start of the new year for the Celts. It was a common belief that the previous night was a time when the veil between the worlds of the living and the dead were the thinnest. The day before the new year was the day when the spirits of the dead would wander around and that one could communicate easily with them to divine the future, which made the 1st of November a happy day of relief from the night of spirits. But do remember that communing with the spirits was not necessarily a bad thing for the Celts. Such communication could bring wisdom and knowledge of the future. The early Christian church decided this was an old festival that was due an overhaul. The 1st of November became All Saints Day, 
when the saints delivered you from the terrors of the night of Halloween, and the 2nd of November became Old Souls Day. All Saints Day became All Hallows Day, and then the night before, naturally, became known as All Hallows Eve. You have to repurpose old festivals and turn old gods into new ones, otherwise how will the sun come up? But superstition can't be eliminated from a culture. Our ancient ancestral memories remain from ancient Celtic times, when the land was mist and magic down through history, where candles were lit to keep the witches away on Halloween. And as long as they didn't go out, the house was safe. For the Irish in ancient times, the fire was lit on Samhain. Then it spread to bring back the sun. As ages passed, the fire remained a folk memory. Ashes in the hearth were raked over the floor on Halloween and examined for footprints, the placement of which told fortunes. The festival lingered on throughout British history. When British invaders and colonists arrived in the USA, it's only natural they would take the customs and spirits from the old country with them. After all, if you died in the new world, how could you be sure that God and the spirits of the old wee folk would see you if you didn't keep the old customs? For later generations, local folk superstitions died out or got replaced with new ones, especially in America, which imported huge numbers of cultures in its various ways of immigration and, of course, the poor slaves were dragged in with horrific conditions and who added their own elements of culture to the melting pot. People stopped hanging a horseshoe up above the door to protect them from the fair folk who stole babies at night and did it just for luck as an old memory. To the Victorians, the shock transition from rural community to impoverished city dwellers shattered many of the old community customs. Some of the really famous ones like Halloween remained, but in a very different form to that developing in the United States. But not so different, it wasn't recognisable. There are only so many ways you can carve a pumpkin, after all. Actually, the original carving was done to turnips in Ireland to create jack-o'-lanterns based on the old Irish legend of Jack being forced to wander the earth forever as a punishment for trying to trick the devil, his way lit only by a burning coal held in a carved turnip lantern. The Irish diaspora, reeling from the famine, took the custom of carving to the United States and adapted it to the far better pumpkin. Turnips are pretty tiny to carve and stick candles in after all, so I'm sure it was a relief. Even in the 19th century, 
fire remained the key to the festival. From giant bonfires in the highlands, to ashes red for augers, to pitchforks topped with burning hay in Perthshire. That last is interesting, as the farmers carried them from field to field, following the setting sun. A very pagan rite in a Christian country. Burnt offerings of nuts, stones in the fire, stones painted white, then cast for the house. Find your stone, you live. You can't find it, you're touched to die in a year. All hark back to the ancient times when it was a man to be cast into the flames, now commemorated as a carving and a candle. Yet for pre-modern Christianity, there were always heavily elements of superstition. The Bible mentions ghosts, devils and wizards. To quote from Leviticus 19.13, Regard them not that have familiar spirits, neither seek after wizards to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. End quote. After all, for a pre-modern Christian, it is a matter of logic that for God there is no division between natural and supernatural. As a being of absolute omnipotence, there is only his power, and it is mortal creatures with a limited view that would draw the distinction. For the more literalist Victorian Christian, belief in the supernatural wasn't anti-Christian at all, but in fact a recognition of the limits of human understanding and humility for the wider divine mysteries of the cosmos. When Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein and dared suggest that the spark of creating life might not be limited to the divine, but instead a mechanical scientific process, she was being transgressive indeed. The line between science and superstition was thin. In the 1830s, the Industrial Revolution was a mere few decades old. When the fire died down and the wind rattled the shutters, who knew what lurked at the edges of the candlelight? The old things the unquiet spirit. What if great-grandma had been right about the lost? Was the village really safe? What about your cottage, perched on the hill above it, as the wind whipped the branches, the lights from the nearest human miles away now, the tiny factory long shut for the night? What human arrogance to think a steam engine proved the world was a safe place. You were as alone and helpless as your ancestors. Your cottage no stronger than theirs. Your clothes differed in style, not substance. How isolated and weak you were in the dark. Your courage held only by a candle. Halloween hadn't gone away in Britain. The yearning for the fae and the old dark folk 
who lived just out of the corner of the eye remained, yearning and fear. Halloween was still well established enough for Robert Burns to write a 28-verse poem about it. Don't worry, I'll only give you a couple of verses. Quote, Yes, let the rich deride the proud disdain, the simple pleasure of the lowly train. To me more dear, congenial to my heart, one native charm than all the gloss of art. Goldsmith, upon that night when fairies light on Cassilis Downen's dance, or o'er the lays in splendid blaze, on sprightly coursers prance, or for Colleen the rout is ta'en beneath the moon's pale beams. There, up the cove, to stray and row, among the rocks and streams, to sport that night, among the bonny winding banks, where doon winds wimpling clear, where Bruce ants ruled the martial ranks and shook his cack spear. Some merry, friendly contra folks together did convene to burn their nits, a pour their stocks, a hold their Halloween, bablion that night. End quote. And a quick apology to the Stories of Scotland podcast if you're listening for my dreadful mispronunciations there. Yet, as the error went on, technological marvels, unmatched in human history, began to chip away at the edifice of superstition. Conjuring fairy light is impressive when the tallow candle is the cutting edge of human lighting technology. The ability to summon a small glowing ball the size of a pea that didn't flicker was magic. But suddenly, it seemed quaint when a gaslight could appear on command by any human with enough money to hire a fitter. The candle no longer battled the shadows when Pau Mau was well lit with public streetlights. What use was a fairy meal that disappeared when the sun rose, when factories could produce thousands of cans of food that could travel round the world and feed a soldier a hot meal that tasted the same as at home? But what was it like for the individuals? Well, as always, I'll start at the top with Queen V. I checked what Victoria was up to on Halloween of her coronation year, but it was almost all taken up with her crushing on Lord M. A decade later, in 1847, she gives some details of a dreary day listening to sermons and overseeing the children's education. 1857 is even less interesting. But in 1867, it is all change. Her Majesty was most definitely amused by Halloween. Quote, A dull and rather windy morning. Rode with baby and walked. Drove in the afternoon with Louise and Janie. Talking our tea. Close to the falls. 
of the Gower Vault, which we went up to see. On coming home, we saw the torches in celebrating Halloween, which were carried from Donald Stewart's house. Louise got out and carried a torch, walking by the carriage. As we neared Belmar, all the keepers, their wives and children, the gillies, etc., met us with torches and followed the carriage. Leopold and the ladies and gentlemen joined, all walking round the castle and going down the steps of the terrace. It had a very pretty effect. Then went in, watched the torches being tossed on the field, on a huge bonfire, and reels being danced, whilst Ross the piper played. End quote. This was followed up the next year, on the 31st of October 1868, quote, Mrs. Grant gave us whiskied cream, as she called it, with oatmeal sprinkled at the top which she said everybody eats on Halloween. At six, the torches began to be lit up. Louise, Leopold and Christian, each carrying one, and Lenchen and I drove. On nearing the castle, numbers met us, and we remained out to see all the walking around. Then some reels were danced, round a blazing fire made from a pile of torches. It had a wild effect. End quote. Halloween in 1871 had a familiar feeling to it. Quote, Tea with Alice and Beatrice, and afterwards the Halloween procession. Beatrice, Louise, and the ladies and gentlemen joining it. I'm sure. There must have been one hundred people carrying torches. They were piled up into a bonfire in front of the castle as usual. And, the evening being very calm, they burnt splendidly. Poor Leopold had been rolled on his sofa bed to my room, from which he could see the hole. Some reels were danced, then all moved off to the iron ball room where they were going to dance after having some supper. 1837 was pretty similar. Quote, the maids of honour joined us, and Beatrice with them walked with the Halloween procession behind my carriage, carrying torches as everyone did, and the pipers walking in front. The rain had quite ceased. I never saw so many torches. There must have been quite 150. I got out of the carriage when we arrived at the house and walked round the castle with Beatrice and the ladies. Gentlemen were followed by all the servants, tenants, etc., with torches. Then these were all piled on the ground to make a bonfire to which were added all kinds of pieces of wood, packing cases, until there was a great and tremendous fire. In front, there was dancing. End quote. So there you have it. Halloween in Victoria's journals. Celebrated in Balmoral, and clearly playing to her love 
of an imaginary Scotland, and the romantic and authentic Scottish history that was busy being made up. We know she was a regular at the processions, always at Belmore. Sadly, 1877 was taken up with family illnesses. 1882 was also a remarkable entry, since Victoria had Sir Garnet Wolsey to dinner for Halloween, and most of the entry was actually a pretty interesting account of the fighting in Egypt. By 1897, she was an old woman indeed, and there's no mention of Halloween. Still, each of these events took days of preparation and were mentioned in the local press. Victoria certainly had the budget for it, and it was rather frugal compared to the elaborate parties of her Georgian ancestors or the decadent French kings of old. Of course, if you didn't have your own castle, an army of local people to do the grunt work, and an actual army to provide the pipers, well then you did what everyone in the respectable middle classes did. Had a huge party with gallons of alcohol. Seriously, the Victorians, as I've said before, would have parties at the drop of a hat. Any excuse. Halloween is a really good one. It simply isn't true to say that the Victorians didn't celebrate Halloween or have Halloween traditions. A quick glance at the number of ghost stories will tell you this was actually a culture that was very interested in the supernatural. What was really different was that it had not yet turned into the more ritualised dressing up, watch a horror film and go trick-or-treating of today. Halloween parties are very well documented and there are some clear similarities although much depended on what country you were in and the decade. Linda Beard, in her 1891 book, recalled her friend's Halloween parties of her youth, quote, It was quite the custom, for quite a number of years, of some friends of the writer to give a Halloween party on each recurring Halloween, and merrier, jollier parties than those were it would not be easy to devise. The home, which opened wide its hospitable doors to the favoured few on this night, is a country house, large and spacious. There is a basement under the whole lower floor, which is divided into kitchen, laundry and various storerooms intersected with passages. And this basement, deserted by the servants, was given up to the use of the Halloween revellers. The rooms and passageways were decorated with and lighted by Chinese lanterns, which produced a subdued glow in their immediate vicinity, but left mysterious shadows in nooks and corners. Putting aside conventionality and dignity, as we laid aside our wraps, ready for any fun or mischief that might be on hand, we proceeded downstairs and into the kitchen, where a large pot of candy was found bubbling over the fire. 
This candy, poured into plates half full of nuts, was eaten at intervals during the evening and served up to keep the spirits up of those who were inclined to be cast down by the less pleasing of fortune's decrees. With plenty of room and no fear of breaking or destroying anything, which is apt but to check upon frolics in the parlour, the company could give full vent to their high spirits. Now in this room, now in that, and again, flitting through the dim passages and around dark corners, each person seemed to be everywhere at once, and although the party was limited to about 25, there appeared to be at least twice that number present. Bursts of merry laughter, and little screams of pretended terror would announce, now and then, that some charm was being gone through with, and someone's fortune was being told. All sorts of games were played, and the variety of our entertainment made the evening pass very quickly. End quote. What kind of games, though? That's what you were thinking. Well, long-time listeners might remember our old Christmas favourite, Snapdragon. With the joy of lighting alcohol on fire and then sticking your face in it. Halloween had a version called the Ghostly Fire, quote, which should not be lit unless all of the party have strong nerves, for the light it produces is rather unearthly and may affect some members unpleasantly. We, at our Halloween parties, never omitted this rite. However, it's very weirdness proving its strongest attraction. Salt and alcohol were put in a dish, with a few raisins, and set on fire. As soon as the flame leaped up, we clasped hands and gaily danced around the table, upon which burned our mysterious fire. The laughing eyes and lips looked in strange contrast to the pale faces of their owners, from which a greenish light had taken every vestige of colour. The dance was not prolonged, for it was our duty before the fire was spent to snatch from the flames the raisins we had put in the dish. This can be done, if one is careful, without as much as scorching the fingers, and I never knew of anyone burning themselves whilst making the attempt. End quote. You can see Linda's parties were obviously quite lively. As a side note, I'm not sure how she managed to get a green glow, since adding salt to flames should produce a more yellow note. It is possible that it was copper sulphate instead, but please don't try any of this at home to find out. Of course, our valiant Victorian party goer might well be disappointed that no one got hurt in the ghostly fire. So, other dangerous party games were available for the drunken guests. A candle could be put on the table. Then, a girl was brought into the room blindfolded, spun round, then told to find the candle and blow it out. As always, falling over furniture 
and crashing into things meant hilarity ensued. Or if the guests had somehow avoided injuries so far, well, there was always the apple and candle game, which, to quote Linda, is another favourite sport for Halloween and is played as follows. From the ceiling is suspended a stout cord, the lower end of which is securely tied to the centre of a stick about a foot and a half long. On one end of the stick is fastened an apple, on the other a lighted candle. The string is set in motion swinging back and forth like a pendulum and the contestants for the prize stand ready, each in turn to make a grab for the apple, which must be caught in the teeth before it can be won. Frequently, the candle is caught instead of the apple, which mishap sends the spectators off into shouts of merriment. But although funny, It is at the same time a little dangerous to catch a lighted candle in one's teeth and we would suggest that a bag made of cheesecloth or a thin material be filled with flour and tied to the stick in place of the candle. When the person essaying to snatch the fruit is struck in the face with the bag and is covered with the flour instead of the glory anticipated, As much mirth will result as can possibly arise when the old and dangerous practice of using a candle is clung to. My view is that if even a Victorian is suggesting things were perhaps a bit too dangerous, then you were better off making your excuses and sticking to melting lead into key shapes for fortune telling or bobbing for apples. Of course, as I've said about other themes on this show, World War II destroyed many of the old traditions as the old cities and communities were wiped out. A newer, plainer world was built in rationing grey after the war. Halloween almost had to be re-imported from the United States and it is a very hybrid, blended holiday. But... Today it is a thriving and fun-filled holiday in the United Kingdom again. And so I will leave you there because I have decorations put up, I have pumpkins to light and children to trick or treat with. Take care and I'll see you soon.